this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest, Steve Hess, has a penchant for buying troubled brands, iconic companies that have lost their way, companies like Indian Motorcycle and Chris Craft, the boat manufacturer. He buys them, builds up their value, and along with his partner, Steve Julius, goes about selling them for a tidy profit. In this episode, we talk about how he looks for and what he evaluates when he's looking to make an acquisition. He also talks about finding companies for less than they're worth, even in terms of book value, which is oftentimes one of the lowest valuation formulas. He'll talk about how to leverage trustees, bankruptcy attorneys to get deal flow before the deals go to market, so you can find out about these deals early. Talk about the surprising impact his dealer network had on the acquisition of Chris Craft by Winnebago, the big RV manufacturers. And he'll also share the one thing he recommends any seller vets before negotiating with an acquirer. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Steve Hess. Steven, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be here. Thanks, John. So listen, I grew up in Toronto and there's an area of, of just above Toronto, but two hours north called Muskoka, where Chris Crafts are running all, around all over the place. And I grew up with these boats as being the, the sort of quintessential, iconic brand uh, for anyone who lives on a lake. Um, tell me about how you started this, this, co- this company. I, you didn't start it, but how did you kind of get involved in, in owning it? Well, the company was founded in 1874 um, in, in outside Detroit, Michigan, and um, it was owned by Outboard Marine Corporation until 2000. Outboard Marine owned Johnson and Evinrude sure. Outboard Motors, and they fell on hard times and went bankrupt. And Chris Craft was one of their divisions, and the judge, the bankruptcy judge sent all the employees home and ordered an auction for the company's assets. And my business partner and I were fortunate enough to be the winning bidder and emerge with Chris Craft. This is Stephen Julius. Yes. So I understand Stephen, I was doing a little bit of reading. He was involved in the kind of revitalization of the, the is, it, is it pronounced Riva or Riva? Riva. Riva. Riva, the Italian brand. Yes. Right. So... I mean, you got in this auction for this business. I'm curious to know how you figured out what you were going to bid for the assets of this company, which were what? Just a, a shipyard, I understand, or a boatyard. Um, yes. And um, at that time, most of the other bidders were real estate developers. And um, living in Tampa, I was able to visit the yard a few times, got to know some of the employees that were hanging out in the parking lot who had been laid off and um, 
had the opportunity to tour the plant privately and quietly and figured out that there was 130 boats in the backyard. And I think the people that we were bidding against did not know they were there. So we were able to fit, to bid a higher price. They were bidding for the real estate. We were bidding for the real estate plus the assets in the backyard. So, um, we were, we were blessed to, uh, to win it, to sell the boats in the backyard, to finish the working process and wound up with more than our money back. So the boats in the backyard were worth more than you paid in the first place for the brand? Yes. Well, the brand was a separate transaction. If you're interested in all the details, there's a Harvard Business School case that was written on the acquisition, our acquisition of the, of the company for an entrepreneurial finance class. Fantastic. So that's, that's, that's a good thing to check out. And you went to Harvard, I understand. Yes. But I don't tell people that. You just told a few people. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Why don't you tell people that by, out of interest? Um, that's called dropping the H-bomb. The H-bomb. Just, yeah, I've heard you that know, before. If, that's, uh, if you have to trade on that, you're, you're not very... Uh, you know, if, if that's the only thing you have to go by, you're not probably, I don't know, successful on your own. Did you... I mean... Do you so? What do you trade on? What I mean, what I understand you've been involved in a few other businesses. Um, what other types of businesses have you have been involved in? Um, Stephen and I had Riva. We also owned Indian Motorcycle, which we bought at a bankruptcy auction and sold to Polaris Industries in two thousand and eleven. Um, and before that, um, purchased industrial fasteners and really were played in more in the industrial businesses that we would typically buy either at bankruptcy or privately negotiated transactions, special situations. We're turnaround guys at heart, um, you know, basically try to find a dollar worth of book value that can be bought for 25 to 33 cents on the dollar, either at an auction or, um, you know, entrepreneur that screwed up. It's fascinating. I think it was Warren Buffett who said, you don't make money when you sell assets, you make money when you buy them. I agree fully. We we strive to create value on day one. And we were blessed to do that in this case. In fact, we've been blessed to to do it in all cases so far, knock on wood. So how do you find these deals? That's the hard part. you know, they're not trains leaving the station where, where one crosses your desk every 12 minutes. You, you wait. You know, they, they typically happen. More of them happen during down cycles in the economy. Um, you know, good loans get made. You know, bad loans get made in good times. So, you know, they can be forced from a bank. Um, you know, you, you can network your way into them to... Um, you know, call on trust officers at the bank, get to know the loan workout people at the bank. Right now, there's not very many of them, but in downtimes, banks will redirect loan officers into the loan workout area. And in the loan workout area are the loans where the customer is at risk of not paying the bank back and new equity is needed. Um, you can't, you know, we will only take control positions. So it's not like every deal in the loan workout department is a potential acquisition target. But, you know, network in your town. So network, Trust officers are good because they know who the rich guys in the bank are. They know who the older guys in the bank are. They, they, want, they would rather have that guy be liquid than have a, a position in a, in a private company that they can't manage his money for him. 
that's also a good place to work. Bankruptcy lawyers, also a good place. So you identify an asset through one of these referral sources, a trust officer, a bankruptcy lawyer. What are yes. you looking for other than it sounds like 25 to 30 cents on the dollar of book value? You know, as we've gotten older and gotten um, wiser, you know, and it does, you know, if it doesn't have a name brand, we're probably not going to be interested at this stage. In the early days, it was, did it have a distribution network? Did it have a product that could be sold profitably? You know, is it, is, is there, is there a gross margin available? Um, you know, business is a game of margin. If it went bust because there's no margin in the product, it's probably not going to be something that's, that we would want to invest in. But now we're, we're pickier, uh, which means there's fewer of them, by the way. But we're looking for, you know, a company with a brand, with a well-known brand, because typically you get all the brand equity for nothing. Well, you know, if you if you can buy tangible assets for less than book value, you're getting all the goodwill, you know, that goes with the trademarks for nothing. Now, I understand in the case of Chris Craft, uh, there were two transactions. One where you bought the boat yard and, and the 130 boats in the backyard. Uh, there was a separate transaction for the actual brand. Correct. Maybe walk us through that if you could. I mean, one of the reasons the tangible assets went so inexpensively was that the trademarks were not part of the auction. Um, the, the boat, the Outboard Marine was a licensee of the Chris Craft trademark. So um, it was owned by somebody else and had been since the 60s. So we bought the tangible assets without having title to the brand and had to do a second transaction to get title to the brand. What was and your... What was your- uh, plan B, if you were not successful in acquiring the brand, we were liquidating the assets. In other so words, when we, when we, when, uh, yeah, exactly. When we bought the company, when we bought the, when we bid for the assets, we we figured out what the highest price we could afford to pay at the auction, knowing that there was a good chance we were going to have to liquidate the assets over the next year or two, and we needed to make sure we got paid to do that. So particularly me, I was gonna t- was gonna tie up you know more than a year of my life or two years of my life and tie up the capital. I needed to make sure there was a return there. So that when we got done selling the boats, got done finishing the boats and selling the whip and got done liquidating the inventory and then eventually selling the plant, I needed to make sure that we got a return for otherwise I'd, you know, spend two years of my life and either lose money or not make money. So we structured that into our calculations in what we could bid. We wound up getting titles of the brand and developing the company, so all those calculations weren't, you know, they weren't necessary in hindsight. But that's how we approached the auction. Got it. And so, who was the owner of the brand? The brand had been owned since the '60s by a guy named Herb Siegel, and Herb bought Chris Craft from the Smith family, who found who were the founders of the company in 1874. And um, Herb fell in love with the television station business. And he sold the boat company in the mid '60s and kept the trademarks. Why would you and, keep the trademarks? Well, he 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 created an annuity for himself in licensing revenue. Got so it. Actually, it, you know, it was foolish of the guy that bought the company without the trademarks, um, because he you know he signed up everyone after that to pay a royalty to use the trademarks, and Herb put the royalty in his pocket every year. And it, it, you know, it grew to be a substantial amount of money. And so Herb had adamantly refused to sell the trademarks. He built a 
a television station conglomerate called Chris Craft Industries. And in the media industry, the media world, Chris Craft Industries was a television station owner. In the boat world, Chris Craft was a boat company. But he grew Chris Craft Industries to have a $5 billion market cap. It was New York Stock Exchange listed. It owned like 40 television stations across the U.S. And we were lucky enough to um, approach Herb at a time that he was selling Chris Craft Industries to News Corp. And Herb would not sell us the trademarks, but he gave us the phone number of the people at News. So we we did a deal with News that that said, if you become the owners of Chris Craft Industries, we will buy the trademarks from News. And that's what happened. Um, News Limited bought Chris Craft Industries, rebranded all the television stations, Fox, and sold us the trademarks. So how do you value the trademark of a of a of a sort of ugly duckling uh you know brand that has nothing to do with the mothership? I mean, how did you guys put a value on what that was worth? Um we we again, we we knew how much we could pay. You know, these things you there's no bank debt. So we basically rolled our net worth together and said what can we afford to pay? This is a, a very old brand with a lot of texture. It evokes feelings. Everybody knows it. It has a global reputation. People have this imagery of, you know, wooden boats and the Kennedys and the, you know, the Muskokas where you said in Lake Tahoe and Cape Cod and Nantucket and all this beautiful imagery. This is a very valuable brand. And, you know, we got into a negotiation with news. They didn't want it. They didn't really understand it. They, they thought, hell, this is found money. Um, and if you get the Harvard Business School case out, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll see what we paid for it and, and how we structured it. And we actually got them to, the, we wound up paying them more than we wanted and they financed part of it for us. So it was a structured deal of sorts. Yeah, I mean, it was a negotiated deal with them. What proportion? It was a structured. It was a deal we negotiated. Okay, okay. What proportion? And I'm re- I'm asking this question, Stephen, because I I want listeners to get a sense from you how big a bet buying the brand was. So I'd love to know what proportion of your personal net worth at the time you were investing to buy that brand. Um, I mean, the whole deal. At the time, um, I'll have to think about that, John. Um, it was significant. I was 40 years old, married, had three children um, in diapers and a wife that didn't work and no income at the time because I was, you know, I dedicated a year to find an, an invest, the next investment. I probably invested 80% of my net worth. That's a big bet. You know, in hindsight, it was a big bet. My dad thought I was crazy. Um, But, you know, I also knew that, you know, great things don't get achieved without great risk. They simply don't. You know, there's I'd studied the world and, um, you know, it's a bet. It's a bet on yourself. It's a bet on yourself as much as it's a bet on a market and a country and a customer and a dealer. 
but yeah, it was a big bet. And it worked out for you guys because 17 years on, you sold the company to Winnebago um, in a you know fantastic transaction, I'm sure. What do you see... Like if you look back of that seventeen year arc beyond buying the brand and buying the the you know the the boats, are there one or two seminal moments that you maybe inflection points that you think that was a decision that we made that really made the company? If you think back at that long arc of seventeen years, oh John, there was a lot of them. I mean, you know, um, good, good and bad. You know, we. Uh, we built a second plant in 2006, opened it in 07, closed it in 08, and sold it in 09, and you know, at a painful loss. So that was a you know a, a downside negative decision. Um, you know, recruiting certain people turned turned out to be you know phenomenal decisions. Model choices turned out to be um, you know pivotal. Um, the initial models that we built, you know, that, that, that gained market acceptance were incredibly important to the future of the company. The decision to tear up, to, to start over, you know, to, to not just put the company back into production with what it was building when it, when it went bust, but to start over, you know, to take a year and design, you know, three new models from scratch. Um, you know, we agonized over that decision. And you know, in hindsight, it was there was really no other decision to make. It was it was the right decision. What did that do? Moving in a different direction with models and really recreating the company. What did that do to the market value of the 130 boats you bought? Uh, they were sold by that point. Um, you know, so they were sold. You know, it was a year later that we introduced our new models. So you know, the 130 boats that we sold, you know, were, had already been in owners' hands for a year. So we were free to to do whatever we wanted. Got it. And my understanding is you sold Chris Craft boats through dealers. Can you talk a little bit about dealers? Like when I think of dealers, I think of you know GM Chevy dealers. It was, is it a similar concept where they've got multiple brands and you yes. use one brand? They 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 yes. They so you're you're from Toronto. One of our best dealers is Pride Marine Group in the Muskokas, sure. and they're uh, you know phenomenal organization. They have you know probably fifteen stores. And located, you know, all around the nice lakes of, of, you know, the Canadian boating area. And they sell five or six or seven brands. And, um, you know, they are the, they are our face to that market. It's our product sitting in their store, but they sell it, they service it, they commission it, they store it for the customer, they fix it when it breaks, they decommission it and put it away for the winter and store it for them. And how does the relationship with the dealers affect the value of your company? When you went to to think about what the company was worth and and and, and potentially exiting, I mean, how did did the did dealer did selling through dealers? Because these days, you know, Tesla's out there saying dealers are a you know a thing of the past, and we all need to buy cars through stores that you buy them online. Dealers, in a lot of ways, feels kind of antiquated. What what did we, that we do? Could, we couldn't. I mean, I, we think our dealer network is a big part of the value of the company. Is it? Um, okay. Yes. What, what are those you know, relationships it, 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 like? I mean, you know, it it takes years to build them. Um, you know, there. You know, this is an industry that works on a handshake. We couldn't sell what we sell in the Muskokas without our dealer. You know, the customer 
is a seasonal customer. He wants to show up and use his boat. When he's done, he wants to leave it at his dock and have somebody go and get it and put it away for him. Who's going to do that but a dealer? And so that the, the folks that live on, on those lakes, they want to buy something locally. There's no way on earth we could afford to put stores everywhere where we would need them on our own ticket. And, and just quietly, I don't think Elon Musk has proved anything because he's burning cash hand over fist and has access to capital that, that no other entrepreneur would have. I mean, the guy can just whistle up capital when he needs it. And he seems to have a license to burn cash incessantly. So I'm not sure, although, you know, I admire what he's done, but until he turns a profit doing it, you know, the jury's out. So let's go back to the the actual sort of transaction, because Winnebago looked at this company and said, um, and you, you in turn looked at Winnebago, obviously, I guess one of the things I'm thinking of is, I'm trying to understand as Winnebago, um, you know, could could they was there anything contractually i guess is the question i have that would uh, impede winnebago from creating its own dealer relationships with the likes of pride marine um did you have sort of some sort of exclusivity in with those dealer relationships that that that, that made them even more valuable in the eyes of winnebago no i mean um you know we have a dealer agreement um you know, we sign it, it goes in the drawer, basically pride, you know, buys products from us, sells them at retail and, you know, pride's free to, to, uh, buy or not buy. And we're free to, you know, at the end of the year, um, uh, pick another dealer if we're not happy with the job pride's doing. Pride does a great job by the way. And, and they've been our dealer for a very long time and we're very proud to have them as our dealer, but it's all done on a handshake. You know, it's, it's um it's it's um it's not like a franchise where where the dealer and the manufacturer are married to each other. Got it. What was the trigger that made you think now is the right time to sell Chris Craft? Um, we gave a um we, we were talking to Winnebago about designing an RV. We had ideas on how an RV could look, possibly to be sold under the Chris Craft brand name. And, and that conversation started and we got to know each other. And after about nine months of talking about it, they asked us if we'd ever consider selling. And that's really how it happened. You know, our company wasn't for sale. There was no investment bank involved. This privately negotiated transaction. And, you know, I think Stephen and I just felt that they're the right people to to own our company you know they they agreed to keep the company here in sarasota they hired all of our managers you know they 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 they're going to invest a lot of money into it and so that it just felt like the these were the right people and because these are the right people this is the right time you know after 17 years this is our family here and you can't just sell your family to the highest bidder you need to put your baby into the hands of somebody that's going to nurture it and, and not just, you know, nurture your employees, but nurture your dealers and, and nurture your end customers. So they were the ones who made the first move and said, hey, would you guys ever consider selling? Yes. Take me to the next meeting that you have with Stephen, Julius, when they're not in the room. What, what was that conversation like? Um, you know, I think we both felt 
you know, the company has big opportunities and they were probably bigger than what Stephen and I had the financial appetite to pursue. Um, you know, we were investing two to two million dollars a year in new product, another two million dollars a year in in capex, facility capex, and we had opportunities that were bigger than that. You know, we had we have you know we have we have more new product ideas than we ever can budget to to uh, develop, and so you know we didn't want to get to, we we could have raised capital, we could have borrowed money. Um, but we didn't want to get diluted. We enjoy working together. We enjoy making all the decisions, having a third shareholder or a group of shareholders, you know, may or may not screw up the wonderful relationships we all enjoy. So it didn't feel like getting diluted was the right thing. And we didn't want to be in debt to anybody. You know, we, we, we like having a lot of free cash flow, and we like, we liked it the way it was. Yet we have these opportunities. You know, we, you know, eighty percent of the boats in the U.S. are less than twenty-four feet. We don't really play there. You know, we, due to capacity constraints, we 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 sell much bigger products to very rich people. We don't really have anything to migrate a customer up from twenty feet. You know, our typical sale is. 150 grand at retail and the sweet spots more than or probably twice that. So it just, we see the opportunity and realize that perhaps we're not the best people to fully exploit it. Were we exploiting it? Yes, we were. And yes, we are. But if we can, instead of doubling the size of the company over the next five years, if we can triple it, you know, and you have an opportunity to triple it, you need capital and you need deeper pockets. And, and the folks at Winnebago understood that. And so, and let me try to parse the, try to understand sort of the, some of the financial stuff. So, so you're running this company. Is it profitable? Like on, a, on an EBITDA basis or a... Uh, oh, very, yeah, very. So, all, okay. all the, 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 the capital that we're investing is all internally generated. I was going to say, you're not reaching into your own pockets and putting in $2 million. We, 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 haven't, we haven't put a penny into the company since 01. Got it. So it's, it's cash flowing and, and, and generating profits. We got, uh, which we, is got through, we got through the financial crisis without putting any money in the company. So yeah, for sure. Every, everything that's been invested has been internally generated. But, but in order... To, to really scale and go after what you saw as a huge opportunity, it would have required you know, a, another investment level that you weren't prepared to make personally. Or the company was yes. able to fund, I guess. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, we built a second plant once. The market crashed and we got through it without putting money into the company and, and you know, paid off our, our debts didn't really want to live that. And, you know, you get to a point in your life where you're enjoying your lifestyle and you're enjoying the money that you're making out of the company. You don't really want to cut that either in order to fund further CapEx. So you're going to grow at three new models a year. And, and when you really have an opportunity to be selling six new models a year and you wind up abandoning the smaller products because they have slightly lower margins and you wind up building the bigger products because you can where you make higher margins. So you wind up making, um, you know, the right decisions for yourself 
but you're not exploiting all the opportunities the company has. What was the toughest part where the Winnebago negotiation perhaps got to the point where it was in question? Where where did that sort of um, pinch happen? Um, I'm thinking. You know, it never really got to be that. You know, there there was never a uh, a deal breaking discussion. Um, there was a lot of debate over the language of the non competes um, and the length of them, and when they started and when they stopped, and that was kind of painful. Um, and that's about it. I that was be, really it. I wouldn't be doing my job. I I know there are people listening to this saying. This guy is a rock star. He sold Chris Craft. He sold Indian Motorcycle. I mean, he's got the gift. What what can I learn from Stephen that I haven't already learned from this interview? What if you? I mean, you've done this nine times now. If you if you could distill one piece of advice for a young entrepreneur who is going through perhaps looking at their first exit, what what one piece of advice would you share with them? Hmm. You know, I would be highly specific on the on the specifics of their situation going through the exit. You know, I think, you know, deal with good people. Look at look at the tea leaves of the people that you're dealing with on the other side. You know, you can't make a good deal with bad people. Um, you know, really get to know the acquirer before you start talking about the numbers and the math. Um, you know, our term sheet was a handshake. You know, literally, it was it was an email that we carved on back and forth. It wasn't signed, and that's just a testament to the quality of the Winnebago people that we're dealing with. You know, they you know th- this happened because they're great people. Um, so I, you know, if if you don't have that, walk away. Well said. Last question: If I'm doing the math right, your kids are now in their early 20s. Yep. This is a life-changing number. I mean, this is this is a pretty public Chris Craft is is a huge brand. It's well known in South Florida. It's a big deal. How are you stick handling that with your kids? You know, they're not really focused on it. You know, they're in college and um you know, they got they're busy with their own lives and you know, they kind of shrugged and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm staying with the company. I love the business. I love the people. I've made a, a minimum five-year commitment to, to run the company. And so I don't, my, my kids haven't, uh, haven't really focused on it. Well, you did something, you know? right? That's, uh, no, no, that's no one's put their hand out and asked for a new car. Or like that. <laughs> that might be coming, Stephen. <laughs> that might be coming. Hey, listen, it was really generous for you to spend a few minutes with us today. Thanks for joining us. All right, John. Thank you. Thank you. Love to listen to the finished product when it's done. Will do. All right. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.